Good evening. Let's have our Bibles ready for good use, turning to the book of Psalms in chapter 73. Psalms chapter 73. I sure appreciate people who faithfully attend these Sunday evening assemblies. Anytime Christians can come together, open their Bibles, study and learn and make good resolutions about their lives, it is a great thing. You encourage me and I hope that I can help you. Someone asked me one time, did people who lived in Bible times ever get down, dejected, angry at everybody and everything and on the move away from God? Were there times of doubt for those people? Were there people who walked outright to the edge of apostasy? Are there cases where men and women just gave up and quit serving God and then realized their sin and came back? Did that ever happen to any of God's people? And the answer we know is yes. There are the cases of David and Elijah, just to name two. Those are well-known cases where men suffered great sadness and grief. David, after his sin, Elijah after a great dynamic victory. Not as well known, this man Asaph, who lived in the time of David and Solomon, a Levite who worked in the temple as a Hebrew song leader. In addition to that assigned function, God used him to write some of the Psalms David collected into this book. And this psalm is very personal. The writer tells his own story to the readers. And he lets his readers listen to him speak to God. We're going to give our attention now to the 73rd psalm. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But 
When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I think there may be in our minds, or in the minds of people we know, a rather romantic but unrealistic view of the writers of the Bible. We may incorrectly think of these writers as perfectly righteous, extraordinary, super spiritual people who lived in some isolated higher level status, separated from the tough realities of life on earth, automatically receiving immediate help if their mood started to drop. If you think that, about the writers of the Bible, you need to devote some time to the book of Ecclesiastes. You need to read the New Testament account of Simon Peter. Become acquainted with David. Read the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. See, God chose ordinary people and supplied them with extraordinary gifts to reveal his word to us but they were still real people. They had to make choices, navigate daily life, learn from their mistakes. People who suffered stress, who got tired, who were tempted, who were under pressure, who were capable of anger and bitterness and wrong choices. These people who were involved in writing scripture like us had the capacity to make choices make mistakes, and entertain attitudes and thoughts that were off base. Not one writer of the Bible was absolutely perfect or sinless. The product of their writing was exactly what God wanted it to be. But these men who wrote the Bible were free moral agents who lived through a variety of earthly struggles and to our benefit, God allowed them to tell their stories of grief and doubt and weakness. 
And from this passage, we are able to know about this man, Asaph. He shares his story with us. How can we commend him? And how can we learn from him? First of all, I want to observe that he was an honest man when this was being written. Honesty is a trait we can admire. Once Asaph turned back to God, he wanted to honestly tell his story. While he was marinating in bitterness, he didn't say anything. That was wise, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But once he got his heart straight with God, part of the fruit of repentance for him was to use his story to warn others and to speak of the goodness of God. He is like, in this regard, at least two other Bible characters, David and Paul. David, after his repentance, was public about his sin. He told his story. It's written for us. Paul, after his obedience to the gospel, wrote about his previous life. One time Paul said, I was the chief of sinners. He's telling his story for the benefit it might have. It may be hard, and it may not be deemed necessary in every single case, but there can be value in telling others where we went wrong and then quickly explaining the process of our repentance and speaking of the goodness of God honestly. I commend Asaph for his honesty in telling his story as a part of the fruit of his repentance. Now, back to something that I mentioned only briefly. While he was in this state of bitterness, he didn't spread it. His silence in this regard is to be commended. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Here it is in the NIV. If I had spoken out like that, that is to say with that bitterness, I would have betrayed your children. I take this to mean Asaph, even in his bitterness and what he calls his ignorance, he had enough wisdom to not preach his bitterness, to remain silent so as not to betray God's children. It's one thing to fall into a period of doubt and bitterness and to work through that. It is another, while you're in that bitterness, to preach it, to spread it, to try and convert people to it. I've known people, and you have too, who in their fall away from the Lord tried to pull others down with them. So I give Asaph credit first for his honesty when he came back to God, and then for his silence during the time of envy and bitterness and movement away from God. Third, I believe we can appreciate how clear and firm Asaph is in the expression of the point he's trying to make. He's trying to make one point in the 73rd Psalm. 
And it's captured by three words. God is good. Have you ever read an article or a chapter in a book and you have no idea what the writer's getting at? Or have you ever listened to a sermon and when you're finished you have no idea what the main point was? What was the main idea? Or a Bible class, go through a passage, you have no idea what the main idea is. Asaph is to be commended for putting out front the main idea and making it very clear. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then at the end of the psalm, he says it's good to be near God. So you have bookends. At the front, he says God is good. That's my point. And at the end of the psalm, he says it is good to be near God. He makes that very clear. He's to be commended for his clarity. If you're going to tell your story of doubt or reveal a time in your life when you were bitter and you've come back, make sure you acknowledge what that's all about. And make sure you acknowledge it's not about you. It's about God. Don't just tell a story like this for dramatic impact. Don't tell the story for shock value or entertainment or because it arouses curiosity. What did you learn when you were down in that valley? When you looked up, who did you see? God is good. Asaph is exceedingly clear in saying, that's my point. So I'm going to begin our study by commending Asaph for being honest Secondly, for keeping his mouth shut during the time he was in that valley of bitterness. And third, for telling us what he learned about God in the process. God is good. God is to be desired. Now let's go back and look at what happened in Asaph's mind that took him into this valley. And our purpose here is so that we can avoid that journey into bitterness. Listen to some of this again, starting at verse 2. And what we're now trying to do is see how he got there and avoid that. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now listen to how he saw that in his time of bitterness. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Reading through this, one dimension of his turned attitude was 
he made earthbound comparisons that led to envy. I believe this is very common. For people to let their mind get off into this earthbound perspective, this envy-producing comparison. And it sounds something like this. Somebody will say to themselves, and if they're not silent to others, I'm a Christian and I'm doing what's right to the best of my ability. I don't break the commandments. I attend all the assemblies. I give and help people and read my Bible and listen to preachers. Yet across the street from my house, there are people who have no interest in Christ and they're doing very well. They drink and party and they are rich and they have nice things and nothing bad ever happens to them. They're fat and sleek at the same time. You see what's happening? We compare and we envy and we look and we exaggerate and we bemoan our earthly disadvantages and we say about people, well, they never get sick and their car transmission never breaks down and their appliances always work and they have it good. Do you hear the exaggeration? You see what's happening? Earthbound, earth-limited, often materialistic comparisons are made generally with ridiculous exaggerations and hyperbole. And that kind of earthbound, envy-based thinking takes us to no good place at all. It certainly doesn't change earthly circumstances. It is short-sighted. It is incomplete. And if you let that go on, it's going to cloud up your faith. These kinds of earthbound comparisons may be tempting at various times, especially if things are not working out too well in your life from a temporal standpoint. Somebody said one time when I was doing some study about Asaph that he looked at life with eyeballs only. Meaning he only looked at the earthly, the horizontal. His perspective lacked moral and spiritual value because his view was limited. He was looking across the street, not up. It was an earthbound comparison that was accompanied by and fueled unreasonable exaggeration and envy. It doesn't do us any good to think in these terms at all. Earthbound comparisons are not accurate. They're not objective, they're extremely limited and immature and destructive. Asaph would tell us after his recovery from this bitter envy, just don't go there, it's a waste of time. It's ignorant and it's bitter. Jude 21 says where your mind ought to be. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's not a waste of time. I can keep myself from being disillusioned by keeping myself in the love of God through prayer, absorbing His Word, growing my faith, serving others, refusing to get hung up on earthbound comparisons. Asaph got real. He came into the presence of God and he started thinking on a higher plane. And a light of maturity came on. And he realized how his comparisons were not only off base, they were leading him down to a destructive path. 
His comparisons were foolish, exaggerated. And by the way, Asaph's coming into the sanctuary of God was more than just his physical body crossing a threshold, if it was that at all. It was his mind and heart being awakened by going back to the fundamental conviction that God is good. And he was able to resume his good thoughts and readjust his attitude on that higher plane. Something else. Asaph's experience teaches us to never ignore the final outcome. As Asaph gives us his testimony, he admits that part of his problem was he viewed the wicked only in terms of their earthly condition, not their final outcome. This is part of the light that came on. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Some of you have older translations where it says, I considered their latter end. And then you come down to verse 20. For behold, those who are far from you, Asaph says to God, shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So here's a, a leading question that can help us with good mature perspective. Do you really want your wicked neighbor's life knowing where they're headed? So here are people you know, and in this perspective that you have that is earthbound, all you can see is that they have a smooth life. And you say to yourself things that are exaggerated. They never get sick. Their car always starts. They're never in trouble. They have better things. They have more money. They seem to have more fun. They are full and healthy and nothing ever goes wrong. Well, that's exaggerated, of course. But then, do you really want to trade places with them knowing where they're headed? Do we really think that it will be fine to go to hell if we have good stuff now? When we are thinking soberly, we confess, I'll take a little here on earth and I'll put up with some disappointment and pain here on earth. That's okay if I know Jesus is going to take me to God in heaven someday. When we watch wicked people have a good time and when we deceive ourselves into thinking that they have no trouble, we need to stop and consider their latter end. Where are they headed? And at the same time we acknowledge where they're headed, we ought to say in Hebrews eleven sixteen, we desire a better country that is heavenly. We sing the song, earth holds no treasures but perish with using however precious they be. Yet there's a country to which I'm going, heaven holds all to me. One more thing. Asaph says, now that I'm out of this valley of bitterness and ignorance, I'm going to tell people. I may tell of all your works, verse 28. 
Here's how the passage ends. The last phrase in verse 28, that I may tell of all your works. Now, here's what I need to do with that. Here's how I need to interrogate myself. If I'm convinced that God is good, if I'm going to not dwell in envy and bitterness and doubt, if I'm solidly convinced that God is good, am I going to tell others about the goodness of God? This is, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 73, 28, an evangelistic statement. There was personal evangelism in the Old Testament when good people told their friends that God is good. Not exactly the same message or the same audience as in the book of Acts, but people who really appreciated God and loved to obey Him spoke to others about the Lord. Once Asaph realized his erroneous attitude, and he came back to God, went over into the sanctuary of God and thought about it, considered their latter end, he then spoke his praise to God and to others. He made a resolution. I'm going to tell of all the Lord's goodness. That's a pressing application for every Christian today. To speak to others about the Lord and His goodness. This week, tell others what you're getting from the Word of God. Bring others with you to these assemblies and classes. Point them in the right direction. Like Asaph, make this resolution. I will tell of all his works. Asaph became a preacher with one theme. God is good. God is good. To complete our study, may I take us to Ephesians 2, 13. One part of Asaph's resolution was his wholehearted belief that it's good to be near God, that is to be in fellowship or relationship with God. The issue is we are not fit for such intimacy with God. We are sinners. We have left God to live a life of sin. The good news is there's a way out of sin and into fellowship with God when you hear the gospel and respond. So Ephesians 2.13 says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what is necessary? One's response. Your faith in Christ prompting repentance and taking you to obedience and baptism to arise to walk in newness of life. It may well be everybody in this audience is walking in newness of life. Keep living that way. And if you know people who are not walking in newness of life, find an opportunity this week to invite them to recognize the goodness of God. Let's be standing while we sing. Love to hear, I love to sing its word.
it sounds like music in 